Thank you again, worship team. Leading us in songs of learning to trust in the Lord, and I pray that those songs are ministered to your soul. They're, they're such powerful songs. Even the, the, mod, the kind of like the contemporary twist on the familiar hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Just appreciate that. So many times I, uh, throughout my Christian life, I've sung many of these different, these different songs that we sung this morning, each one ministering to, to me in, in different times, different places, uh, with, the, with the comfort of God and just encouraging us to trust in the Lord. That is our theme this morning. In fact, if you kind of just look, uh, it's our sermon title is Trusting in the Rock of Ages. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 26 to 27, as we look to God's Word this morning to learn more about how we can trust in the Rock of Ages for us. Again, I just want to warmly welcome our guest that's with us this morning. I know there's a probably other guests out here that maybe you didn't get a chance to stand up, but I want to welcome all of you here. Uh, glad to have you with us and just worshiping with the Lord with us today uh, at San Francisco Bible Church. Pray that the uh, Lord would draw you closer to himself and, uh, and uh, through our worship this morning. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 27 is where we'll be, and kind of just in that section of Scripture where we're going two chapters at a time. And because of that, I, I, I don't want to just kind of skim over the reading of Scripture. I always want to make sure I read all of Scripture because that's God's Word. And I just want to make sure that we all hear it. And then, uh, then you know, if I cut anything, cut, it down, cut out my explanation of the text and let you guys study yourself at home. But uh, before we look to this text, let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your Word. And thank you for the truths in which we find here in your book of Isaiah, this 26th and 27th chapter. Lord, as we study it, we ask that your spirit would teach us. Lord, I know in this room that many of us need to hear this word. We need to hear a reminder, encouragement to look to you, to trust in you. Father, certainly we all have various trials, various afflictions, various sufferings, various circumstances that are making us and tempting us even to not trust in you, tempting us to, to doubt your goodness, to doubt your faithfulness, to doubt even your existence. Father, we pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning through your word. We pray that your spirit would take your word and cause it to go forth and not return void. Speak to each one here exactly that which they need to know, need to hear from you. Lord, minister to your souls, Father. Lord, cause your people to put their trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. When a, a little bit of theology this morning to, for introduction, you know, it's always kind of fun to have theology, uh, a little kind of different to, to help you kind of know the differences uh, that are out there among Christendom. Uh, when it comes to studying prophecy, there is one major interpretive difference among scholars. Regarding the whether there is a future for the nation of Israel, where there is a future for national Israel according to the scriptures. Now, some say that there is not. There is no future for national Israel. Israel was used by God in a certain time, in a certain place in the Old Testament. But as now in the New Testament, they are now part of the church. They're part of the church. And therefore, all the promises, all that were meant for the church, for the Old Testament, Israel, are now really fulfilled in the church. Uh, This would be called, uh, generally called, a a covenantal uh, point of view. Now, they uh, call this, uh, sometimes the church is called a spiritual Israel or uh, the new Israel. Now, that's one point of, view, point of view and one perspective, one theological perspective. And we would want to add that that's not a, uh, that, that is held by many, many, many godly, very w- intelligent uh, w- uh, scholars and men and women of the word. Now, the other point of view that we need to be aware of, this is the, this, this is the point of view that I take, and, and the point the perspective that this church takes is that there is, we believe that the scriptures teach that there is a future for national Israel. That according to the scriptures, there is a future for this nation apart from, even apart from, the church, the promises to the church of Jesus Christ. That just as God was faithful to fulfill his promises of judgment to the nation Israel, so God is faithful to fulfill his promises of blessing upon the nation Israel as well. This, uh, this latter view we tend to call, is tended to be called dispensationalism. And uh, dispensationalism has a lot of uh, funny kind of things about it. And um, I'm not sure if I agree with everything about dispensationalism, but I do hold to this very clear distinction 
that we believe that the church and Israel are distinct, that there is a future, just as God promised Israel, he's going to keep those promises to national Israel. He has a purpose for national Israel, and he is not done with national Israel, and he will fulfill his purposes. Now, I believe that this comes out of a, nat- a, literal, a natural, literal, historical, grammatical reading of the scriptures. That when you read the scriptures, you see when God says there, I'm, this is for you, Israel, this is for you, Jacob, this is for you, Judah, this is for you, Ephraim, God means it for Israel, for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And he's going to fulfill those promises. Because in, in, in our section, our scripture today, we find promises for the future of Israel. It would be really odd if God, you know, it would be kind of, honestly, it means a little disconcerting to me, actually, if I actually believe that all the promises to, that when God says Israel in the Old Testament, he really meant the church, the new Israel, as some would say. Because I wouldn't say, well, if God meant, didn't really mean Israel when he was talking about Israel in the Old Testament, then in the New Testament, when God says the church, it would make me a little uncomfortable. Well, maybe it means some different church. Maybe it means some different kind of church that's going to receive these promises, not the church that we know today. That, uh, that partially unsettles me. But I just believe, just clearly when you read God's word, you just take God at his face, God at his face, uh, face value. When he says, I make this promise to Israel, I'm making it to you, Abraham, I'm making it to you, Isaac, I'm making it to you, Jacob, and your descendants, your descendants, your seed. He really does mean it for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's descendants. People who are descended from them. And that's not me because I don't, I don't think I have any Jewish blood in me. And then, but that is for every descendant of Israel. Now, this is, this is just kind of a little bit of theology. You know, don't get to you know, say, oh, are you a covenantist? Are you a dispensationalist? And you know, look to persecute people that are not dispensationalists. You don't need to do that. It's, they're godly people both sides. But it influences how we look at the scriptures. It influences how we look at the, this Old Testament text this morning. And I find very encouraging here that this promise to Israel is a promise that he will keep to Israel. And that encourages me because it shows that God is faithful, true to his word, and that when he says the church, he's going to keep his word to the church. When he makes his promise for you and me, he's going to make those promises, keep those promises for you and me. We can count on God too, because God, the sovereign God that we worship that we read about in the Old Testament, he's not just sovereign here in this book. He's not just sovereign in this time. And sometimes you kind of wish, wow, man, I wish God would show himself, would be sovereign and, and acting in our world like he was in the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the God, same God today. He is very much at work in our world today. He may not do so in the miracles and miraculous things that he did in the Old Testament or even in Jesus' day, but he is the same God. He is the God of the Old Testament of Israel. He is the God of the New Testament church. And he's the God for you and me today. And he's our God that we can trust in because God does not change. The God of yesterday is the God of today is the same God tomorrow. Now we are in the middle of a section, Isaiah 24 to 27, about the future events. Now, we kind of already kind of looked at chapters 1 to 12 of Isaiah, how God rebuked uh, Judah, Israel, for their sin, idolatry, immorality, their injustice, and the many other sins that they were guilty of. He offered, there was also hope there of a Messiah that would come, that would reign, and that would, that would bring about a, a, a salvation upon the earth. In chapters 13 to 23, we looked upon how Israel was encouraged not to put their trust, not to put their trust in the nations, though that's what they were going to do. Instead, they were encouraged to put their trust in God. Here in chapter 24, 27, we come to the section then where God says, I'm not just going to judge the nations. I'm going to judge the whole earth. We looked at this last week uh, where God promises a judge of the whole world. That's going to be, not only will he be judged, but he'll also be a savior. And then, and as we studied that last week then, we learned about the coming judge and savior. This week, in chapters 26 to 27, in light of the coming judge and savior, in light of all this judgment that's going to happen, the Israelites, who are the first, you know, the primary first recipients of this letter of the, or this this vision of Isaiah, they receive a promise from God. They receive a promise of their future, a future for Israel. This is what's going to happen for Israel 
the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the Jewish people in the future for them. They do not have to fear. Despite the fact that judgment is coming upon them by Assyria, later on by Babylon, despite the fact that they just read in 24 or 25 about a future judgment that's coming upon all the inhabitants of the earth, they also remind that there's a future Savior. And they are going to find out their relationship. Does that future Savior still offer any hope to Israel? In light of the fact that they're about to be judged, uh, be sent into captivity to Babylon in just a a short, uh, less less than 100 years. This passage answers for us what will happen for Israel in the far future, in the day of the Lord. And as we look at this, we're going to just outline it simply as two events in Israel's future that reveals God's trustworthiness and faithfulness to his people throughout the ages. In this room, I pray that this passage, though it is primarily a passage for Israel, I pray that its application would be encouraging to you. That just as we see that Israel can trust God throughout the ages, you can trust God throughout the ages, throughout the different periods of your life, not only as a beginning as a believer, but as you grow older as a believer, and even if at the end of your life as a believer, you can be trusting in him because he is faithful to keep his promises. So let's take a look then at the future of Israel. First of all, in chapter 26, we see the future response of Israel. We see that God's going to do a mighty work in the nation of Israel. You know, if you know any... um, it's rare that you, well, yeah, yeah, actually we have one, so uh, it's rare that you know, you meet, it's seldom rare that you'll meet a Jewish believer, okay, seldom, seldom, okay, we have one here at least, I know of, I mean, there could be a few others, perhaps, but seldom, because most Jewish people, if you, they tell, they identify themselves as Jewish, they're going to be, follow uh, some kind of form of Judaism, Sometimes they can be more strict, sometimes a more, uh, I guess you call liberal form, but they're going to follow Judaism, follow the Old Testament. It's very rare. And so, as a whole, when you think about Israel as a nation, even today, they do not worship God. They're not followers of Jesus Christ, his God's son. Now, remember, in, the old, in, in Isaiah's day, the people of God were all condemned because they weren't worshiping God. They were sitting against God. They weren't trusting in him. They were trusting in themselves, trusting in other nations. But in the future, according to our text, this chapter 26, Israel is going to respond to their God in a whole new way. They're going to turn as a whole, as a nation, in repentance and faith and trust in God and particularly in his son, in the Lord, the son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They will place their trust in the Lord. And we'll see this in the text through the chain, manifest in their worship of God in the future. They're going to worship God in the future. There's, uh, they, they as a whole do not worship God now. There's a, always this remnant that God preserves. But as a nation, they don't. In this day, in the future day, this is going to be, this is going to be worshiped throughout the land of Israel. Let's read verse 1 to 6. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The one that remains faithful, the steadfastness of, the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it the feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. So this verse begins with, phrase, verse 1 begins with, in that day. And we have learned in Isaiah that in that day is always a day referring to a day of judgment of some sort. Usually it's the far future eschatological day of judgment, the day of the Lord that's often called, that's prophesied throughout. Sometimes in a few cases it refers to a near future judgment, the day that is coming soon. But even that judgment oftentimes is is often kind of figurative and pictures the ultimate judgment that is coming in the day of the Lord, when the Lord God returns, that we saw prophesied in chapters 24 and 25. So in that day, when the Lord returns to judge and reign from Jerusalem, a song of praise is going to emanate from the land. This is going to be number one on the billboards, you know. This is going to be the number one song. It's going to be playing all the time. It's going to be sung. And it's a song of trust. 
It's a song of faith, just as all our songs this morning. I love, thank you, worship team, for choosing songs of trust. I appreciate that. Trust in the Lord and the security in which he brings. It's and particularly in that day, the most secure place is going to be, is, it's a, is going to be the city of Jerusalem. Now, this is actually a song about two cities. It's kind of a contrast between two cities, the city of Jerusalem and this, uh, this other city, this unassailable city that's brought low. But the city of Jerusalem will be so secure. It will be a city of refuge. It will be a place where the righteous nation, that's the nation Israel, may enter. The one, the nation that remains faithful. So... God is, right now, there are believing Jews. And there are a few. There's called, we call them a remnant of faithful Jews, believing, believing, Christ, believing Christian Jews, if you will. But in the future, in this day, the whole nation is going to turn in faith to the Lord. They're all going to be faithful to the Lord. It's not just a faithful remnant, but the nation as a whole will turn. Now, there doesn't mean everyone, but the whole nation, the nation as a whole, majority will turn in faith to God. They will enter into Jerusalem. They will enter in to see the Messiah. Verses 3 through 4 are key verses here. And this future, by the way, is probably describing that period between the tribulation, includes the tribulation period, and that time right before uh, entering into the millennial kingdom. It's kind of which we, um, which we read about in Revelation 4 through uh, 1920. Now, verse 3 to 4 are the key verses in this whole text. This is where the, these are the money texts. Okay? These are the, the texts. If you remember nothing else today, there's so many verses here. I, I'm going to say so many things. If you remember nothing else, remember these two verses today. Highlight these verses, memorize them, put a, you know, sing them, because these songs are the money song. This is the truth. This is, these, are so, these are so powerful words that hymns are written of them. If you kind of just can guess, uh, have you ever sung the hymn, Like a River Glorious? You know that one? No? How about this one, Rock of Ages? Okay, you know that one. All right. And there's a couple other. I just can't, one other one came to me early today, but I slipped my mind already. Anyways, there's so many songs written based upon these two verses because they are that powerful. They are that encouraging to not only to the people of Israel on that day, but the people of God today. Verse 3, if you notice, proclaims, says, the steadfast of mine. And I don't, I don't know if I like that translation, but I like the traditional translation. Stayed upon Jehovah. Right? You guys know that song, Stayed Upon Jehovah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> it's this picture of what is it that's you're supporting you. It's a picture of support. So steadfast means something is something that's you're being supported. What is your mind supported? When you have anxiety, when you have worries, when you have trials, when you're afraid of Assyria coming to take over you, when you're afraid of Babylon coming and conquering you, when you're afraid of dying and death, what is Keeping your mind in check. Most of us will fear, will be afraid, will be anxiety, will be anxious, and we're going to flee. But what causes your mind to be steadfast? What stays your mind? What supports your mind? I trust that this, what supports your mind is the Lord, the one, the one who trusts in God, the, the one who is steadfast, who stayed upon, his mind is stayed upon the Lord. God himself will keep us, will keep him in perfect peace. You want peace? It is found in the Lord by, keep, by trusting in him, by, put, by putting your trust in him. And that's why exactly what it says, verse 3, because he trusts in you. When we put our trust in the Lord, God gives us perfect peace. That's what he promises. That's what the Israelites are singing about in that day. They're going to tell everybody about This is what happens to those who are stayed upon the Lord. We will find perfect peace because we trust in him. And that's the truth for us. Verse 4, 2, similarly, calls us. Now, not only is it the indicative in verse 3, is now goes into the imperative. This, this is what's true, that if you trust in him, you'll find perfect peace. So therefore, trust in the Lord forever. Trust in the Lord forever. Not just today, but forever. You know, when we talk about trust in the Lord, that's talking about believing in the Lord. When all the times when we come as Christians, we tend to think of believing in the Lord as something we did in the past. You know, did, did you, we always ask, what have you, uh, sometimes we meet somebody as a new person here at the church and say, have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? You know, we ask that. It's a past tense. We, we tend to think of it in terms, and we have people share the testimony. When did you believe in Jesus Christ? When did you trust in him? Well, we understand what we're all saying. We're, we're trying to figure out that moment when we began believing in him. But the reality is we shouldn't have stopped. We shouldn't have stopped. We are, ought to be a people who are believing in him, are trusting in him, whatever circumstances God is bringing in our lives. 
this morning, God challenged me to, to trust him when, I was, when my wife woke up and she was feeling so sick. And I thought, uh-oh. So she stayed home with the boys, and, and I had to take Kiara out, you know, brought her to church. And, you know, as a dad, I'm like, oh, man, what's going to happen? I can't do it. You know, what's going to happen? You know, it's gonna, she's going to get lost. I, I don't know where she is right now. Uh, no, no, she's, uh, she's somewhere. But I was so tempted to worry, be anxious. My initial reaction to not trusting God I know it's so petty. You older parents are like, Psh, this guy, rookie. I know you're thinking that. But the fact is, God allows all these kind of little circumstances throughout our lives that just are, we ourselves may be susceptible. You might not be, but God knows. God knows what our weaknesses are. God knows what we don't trust him with. And God wants to test us so that we would learn to trust him in every little circumstance. And that's why some of the circumstances keep repeating because we just haven't learned to trust him yet. I know I'm kind of going off here, but I want you to remember, know this. Trust in the Lord forever. Not just when you began to believe in him, trust in him, but trust in him now for your trials, for your circumstances, for your pains and your sorrows, your burdens, and trust in him tomorrow in the weeks and the days ahead. Trust in him when you're young. Trust in him when you're older and on your deathbed. Trust in him when it's good. Trust in him when it's bad. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God, who is the Lord. Why? Because in him we have an everlasting rock. I love this term, everlasting rock. This is, oh, this is an eternal rock. That's what's translated into the song, the rock of ages, the rock of eons, of periods of time. This is the God who is a rock. And the, first of all, what is a rock? It's not just a little pebble. It's this huge mountainous rock. It's a rock that doesn't move. It doesn't change. It's steadfast. It's immovable. You will always be the same. It'll always be there. That is God. God is like a rock, but he's a rock that lasts throughout the ages. He's a rock in the Old Testament days. He's the rock in Jesus's days, and he's the rock in our days, and he's going to be the rock way, way in the future when we're long gone. Our God is the same. It's not just in every in the different circumstances, the different places of life, it's in the different times of our life. He's our rock. I like that song, that sovereign uh, that we sung. We just talked about that. That's he's sovereign in all the different places of our life, different circumstances. But he's also sovereign in all the times of our lives. Trust in the Lord. That's what God wants. And that's, if you remember nothing else today, you just remember these two verses, okay? That's the main point. And this is the response of Israel that's why they worship him. They trust in him. This piece, of course, isn't just for Israelites. You know, to be honest, to be intellectually fair with the text, this is a promise. This is Israel singing, singing this. This doesn't necessarily mean that it's a promise for people like you and me today. And so we go to the New Testament, and we find that God does make this promise to you and me as well. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I wonder, man, was Paul thinking of Isaiah when he was writing these verses even? It's just the same truth reiterated to us, the church. Now, Israel turns in worship of God. Their trust is reflected in their worship, according to verse 1 to 6. We're also going to be a change, and this is not just single Jewish verse, but the whole nation as a whole. Secondly, we see Israel trust, Israel's trust in the Lord seen in their waiting upon God in verse 7 18. This is really just another way to say trust, but they're seeking of God. I just look, need a W word, so I said waiting. Uh, they're seeking of God. They're seeking God here. They're, they're searching for God. They're longing for God. They're yearning for God. These 12 verses are a prayer, a prayer for, of future Israel. This is what future Israel is going to pray. Now, why do we pray? So we can let God know what he, we need. Well, he already knows what we need. Prayer, in its basic nature, is simply an expression of our dependence upon the Lord. That's what we find here. I think about you know, my own daughter. You know, As a father, I kind of know the things she needs, generally so. But I want her to learn to, we're trying to teach her to ask us. Ask us for things that she needs so that she can learn to depend upon us. So she would express her dependence upon us. And and why is that? Because I'm a control freak and I just want to do that? No. It's because I want to teach her that just as she depends upon me, asks of me, and she depends upon me to ask, that's exactly what she has to learn with God. She depends on God much more, infinitely more than I. 
And I want her to learn to depend and ask God for all her needs. That's what I want to teach our kids. And I know that's what you're trying to teach your kids as well, to pray to him. And that's what Israel's prayer does. It reflects the dependence upon him. And part of it is in prayer, just the dependence comes out of recognition of that we need God, that we need God. And verses 7 to 11 is a recognition of the truth for Israel that they need God, that his ways is the best way. Not the way of the wicked, but the way of the righteous. And so there are two ways contrasted, the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. A very kind of a wisdom psalmish kind of writing here in verse 711. We read, the way of the righteous is smooth, O upright one. So they're talking to God. The way of the righteous is smooth, O upright one. Make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our soul. You see this, this yearning, this waiting, this longing for God. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. See, we'll stop right, just kind of start right there. Israel, rec- Israel as a nation will recognize that when in this time, this is going to be the time probably of tribulation where there's judgment happening, they're going to realize that they need God. And even though the whole earth is experiencing judgment, they are going to learn righteousness. They're going to learn that this is God's justice. This is God who's acting here. And, this is, and the right response for us is to trust in him, to seek him. The wicked don't do that when judgment comes. Verse 10, though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. The wicked, on the other hand, though they are shown favor, and the favor is, using to, is referred to the judgment that they're experiencing. You ever think about the trials that God brings upon your life as a favor from God? I think our brother, Pastor Roger, preached on the message, the gift that nobody wants, right? When we allow suffering in our lives, it's, it's, a, it's a message to, to cause us to learn to depend and trust more on God. God allows discipline, God allows judgment in, in, on the earth so that people would learn that eventually that he's holy, that he's the one who we should fear and revere. And he allows it in our lives so that we would turn away from sin. But the wicked don't do that. The wicked, will, when they experience judgment, they say, well, God, look, there's no God, look I'm, look, I'm suffering. There's no God. In fact, God must hate me. He's an evil God. Where if we're Christians, sometimes we say, God, why are you doing this? That's so unfair. We question him. We doubt him. The wicked don't learn from God's judgments, but the righteous do. They will learn that God's right, that God is, allows trials in their life to draw, to teach them to depend upon him. And that's why Israel is, is a whole waiting upon God, yearning for God. We see this more specifically fleshed out in verses 12 to 18. We realize, the nation realizes that they cannot even save themselves apart from God. They're so helpless in this time of judgment and tribulation. Verse 12 through 18, Lord, you will establish peace for us, since you have also performed for us all our works. In this period of tribulation, this period of, of Jacob's trouble, sometimes also we call it this period of Daniel's 70th week, this period of judgment upon the earth that, de- that Revelations 4 through 19 describe, this terrible judgment that w- this world has never seen. This, the nation Israel will, put, will trust in God, the Lord, to establish peace for us. God will give them peace. God will be the one who performs everything they need for peace. They're not going to find peace from their masters. Verse 13, O Lord, our God, other masters besides you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess our name. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them, and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. In the tribulation, there's going to be just a lot of death and destruction. And Israel is going to realize that though they look to other masters, other nations, they look to, for instance, Ahaz looked to Assyria for help in, in, to resist uh, the Aram-Syria alliance, according to uh, Isaiah 7. We look to everybody else, and Israel looked to everybody else for help. But in this day, they're going to realize that they need to only look to God. Can only, only he can save them. It is he who will deliver them. Verse 15 more. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. When the Messiah comes back, he's going to expand Israel's border to its full extent, which is never fulfilled, despite its promise. And that's what God's promised to them. 
Verse 16, O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth as it seems only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. The nation of Israel is describes their time, their, their suffering in the period of tribulation. They realize that though the, all that they suffer, all that they go through, could not resulted in nothing. It could not save them. They were not paying their dues. Like, oh, Lord, we're, gonna, we're suffering. Therefore, you will not accept this after this suffering. They were like a pregnant woman. It's a very vivid picture of a pregnant woman who goes through all of labor, but then gives birth to nothing, to wind. That's how they, re- they recognize their suffering even, though that, that it was, they could accomplish nothing for their salvation. They're just simply reminded that they needed to depend upon the God who establishes peace for them, God who performs all the works that are necessary for their salvation. And ultimately, as we realize in, later on in Isaiah, but and later on in the New Testament as well, that God had accomplished salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, through the suffering servant who comes and dies in place of national Israel, dies in place of the world. Israel as a nation is going to turn away, turn around, and they're going to wait upon God for their salvation. And especially in that time of tribulation period, that time of judgment. And it's not just Israel's deliverance, salvation, that is all of God. It's ours as well, isn't it? We remind them just kind of just devotional, if you will, that even that when we see that God did everything, all the works that were necessary for our salvation, that's him. He did that, he did that for us as well. Lastly, Israel's response to God, Israel's changed, transformed response, receives, is reflected by a word from God. God will speak to them again. He will, give us, he will speak to them in that day, or he speaks to them with this promise. A promise in verse 19. He says, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. In the tribulation period, there are going to be many people who die. And it's not just the unbelievers who die at the hand of God's wrath. There will be believers who die as martyrs in that day as well. There will be, of course, uh, well, of course, but certainly there will be 144,000 Jewish people who will be preserved from death in that time. But that, there will be time where there will be some who are going to be killed. And the fact is, God says, promises here, that there will be a resurrection. Your dead will live. Your corpses will rise. You who live in the... So there's going to be a resurrection. Now, some people question whether Old Testament actually teaches the resurrection of the dead. Whether that... This is one of those verses that teaches that. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 is another place that confirms this. Daniel 12, 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There is going to be a bodily resurrection of these Old Testament saints that take place. It is so that it will take place at the end of the tribulation so that they may enter into the millennial kingdom where they, God will fulfill his promises to David where, to, so that the, where they will sit and rule under the reign of the Davidic king. The remaining words, not only will there be a resurrection that day, God promised to raise them from the dead. They don't have to fear death. But the remaining words offer counsel in verse 20 and 21. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. The nation is told during this time of truth to hide. Hide for a little while. Hide under, until indignation, God's wrath, runs its course. God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the world, but he tells Israel as a nation to hide, to be secure, to hide, for, run, can, for, and it will be just for a short period of time. Hide because know the, for the fact, in verse 21, that the Lord is going to come. He's coming out of his place to punish. He's going to appear at the very end of the tribulation to judge once and for all and to establish his throne. He's going to punish them for their iniquity, for their sin, 
the inhabitants of the earth. There's no sin that will be left unpunished. We've looked at that already in chapter 24. So we see then there's going to be a future response of Israel. Uh, As a nation, they are going to turn in repentance and turn in faith and trust in God. God's going to do the work of bringing about their salvation that we see. The next chapter, we see another response of Israel that reveals God's faithfulness to them and that there's going to be a future restoration of Israel. God's going to restore them to the very purposes that he has for them. You think about why, why did God choose the nation of Israel? What's the purpose for Israel? Why did he tell, when he said, Abraham, I'm going to select you, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation, I'm going to bless you. What was the purpose? To bless to be a blessing. I will bless you so that through you and your descendants you will be a blessing to the families of the earth. And there will be reiterated in time and time again how God blessed Israel so that they would be a blessing to the nations. So they would be blessing. And that is, and we understand that this, we understand that this is fulfilled primarily because and centered upon in Jesus Christ. So that in the nation of Israel they would be a blessing to the earth through the gospel. But there is a purpose for Israel. And we see it in different prophecies how Israel as a nation will be a center, a center of a place where the nations will go to to look for the truth. They will go to, and we've seen already Isaiah 11, I believe, or Isaiah 2, 2 and 11. The nations are going to say, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go hear about the truth about the Lord. That has not yet happened to national Israel. God is going to keep that promise to Israel. He's going to use Israel to fulfill its purposes. It is his choice vessel through which the Lord, the Lord and the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ might be made manifest in our world. And I believe that and that's going to happen. And it's going to be reflected, this restoration of Israel to fulfill God's purpose and his, God's purposes for this nation. Now, there are several kind of steps or actions that God's going to take to restore Israel to its fruitfulness. He's going to remove some obstacles, if you will. The first one is, is a very complicated verse to, under, to interpret correctly. Uh, can, and that is the punishment of Leviathan. The punishment of Leviathan. Let's just read this verse. And this is, uh, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Whatever this means, it's pretty cool, okay, right? This is some serpents, you know, fleeing, leviathans, dragons. This is all that, you know, sci-fi, sci-fi, sci fantasy guys like myself just love and eat up. Like, yeah, where's the book of that? I want to see that movie. That's cool. But this is pretty hard to interpret. Okay, very difficult. There is significant disagreement among scholars. On, first of all, what is leviathan? What is this leviathan? Um, well, it's this word term leviathan appears five times in the Old Testament, twice in Job, twice in the Psalms, once here. And it seems from those other uses that it does refer to some powerful sea creature. Some powerful sea creature. Some say crocodile, alligator. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Dinosaur maybe. But some powerful sea creature that was stronger than man but yet was powerless against God. So there, were, there is some literal creature called the Leviathan, uh, at least from Job's days and, and in the few psalms that we read. And now in Isaiah. Isaiah's reference to it. However... This term, Leviathan, is also used in a figurative sense. It was used even as a, as a, in a mythical sense in, in some other religions as well. That, and so we be, and it, is, it can be understood then that this word Leviathan can be interpreted not only in its literal, that's not just the literal Leviathan, whatever creature represented, but this Leviathan represents some figurative being or person. It's possible. So you scholars will disagree. Is it? Some people believe it's figurative for nations, for the nations of Assyria, for uh, for Babylon, for Egypt. Uh, some believe it's people, different individuals. Some think that there's not just. Um, and some question too: are, Is there three creatures here? Is it the Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, and then Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and the dragon? Are there two creatures, the, the, the Leviathan and the dragon, or is there one creature that's referred to all here? And so scholars disagree. Now, we can't be too dogmatic on any of this, I tell you. It's, uh, there are just godly men who differ. Uh, I venture to guess that your study Bibles will disagree with what I'm about to teach you right now. But nevertheless, uh, I, I think we, uh, this view it stands on fair biblical ground as well. 
Leviathan, may, though, may have been an actual sea creature, the term is used figuratively here of Satan. It's used here of Satan. It's in the context of future eschatological events, future judgment. And therefore, when we look to places like Revelation, where we see future eschatological judgment, destruction as well, we see there, too, that in Revelation, particularly Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, that Satan, the devil, also is attributed to these very same terms. Not necessarily Leviathan, but the term serpent and 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 dragon. And we read in Revelation 22, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So I take this verse as a, a punishment of the devil, of Satan, that God is going to take care of in that future day. And we do find this in Revelation. We find in Revelation to be true that, first of all, the devil is going to be punished. He's going to be punished. He's going to be, according to this verse, he's going to be held and bound in prison for a thousand years, a millennial, the millennial kingdom. But he will be released at the end of it, and then he will be killed. He'll be cast into the killed, not in the sense that he'll be annihilated, but he'll be killed in the sense he'll be thrown into, cast into the lake of fire, where he will be then tormented forever. That is what's going to happen to Satan. Satan will be, in order for, for the future restoration of Israel, Satan must be removed. He is the one who opposes Israel. I kind of something, and we can't prove this for 100 percent or anything, but you know, just kind of talking just casually. Why does it always seem that everyone wants to kill the nation Israel? Why does it always seem like people want to kill the Israelites, the Jewish people? Why is it they're the ones, the victims of the a Holocaust? Why is it that even now today, the nations around them all want to just you know destroy them? Some organizations exist just to destroy um, that nation. It's because. Israel has a special place in God's program. Just as the Satan serpent wanted to oppose Christ, so he also wants to oppose the nation of Israel. They have a purpose in God's plan. That purpose is not complete. Yes, Christ has already come through them, but there is a purpose for God in the future where Israel will be restored and they will be that blessing to all the families of the earth where all families will want to come and hear from the Israelites, not just from God, Jesus, but from the Israelites who will be his, kind of be his rulers, his, his priests in that day, and they will tell others about him. So there must be a punishment of Leviathan. Secondly, the restoration of Israel is going to involve the protection of the vineyard. The vineyard. Back in Isaiah chapter 5, the parable of the vineyard was used to describe Israel. Israel was that vineyard that God created, and, but then for various reasons, it became a, fruit, a worthless vineyard. It produced only worthless grapes, and so God abandoned that vineyard. Israel, as you know, was known for bloodshed and distress rather than justice and righteousness. It was not known for fruits of, the fruits of righteousness. It was only known it had become a nation of, as according to God's judgments and earlier in chapter 1 to 12, it was just injustice everywhere, abuse everywhere, neglect everywhere. There was no mercy anywhere for me to be found in the nation of Israel. But God says things are going to be different when he returns. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention that each of these three points here is going to be, begin with the phrase, in that day. We see that in that day in verse 1. We see it again in verse 2. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. That's kind of a, you know, we talk about vineyards. And uh, vineyards were in those days. A vineyard of wine, if you kind of just, we live near Napa. And I know there's kind of a stigma among Christians for, you know, because of our, uh, you know, just a hesitance to get, we don't want to be drunk with wine and all that. But in the Old Testament, they didn't even have the hang-up. They just kind of know vineyards of wine were happy things, you know. Because wine is a symbol of joy and celebration. It was something that people would drink in, when they celebrate, particularly, just think about Jesus at the wedding of Cana. Now, this, is, this vineyard here that's spoken of, when, of Israel, it's going to be a vineyard of wine. When people are going to see it, people are going to sing of it. It's going to be something that's worthy of song. It's going to be rejoicing because this vineyard that was once unfruitful is now going to be fruitful. How? Verse 3, I, the Lord, am its keeper. God himself is going to protect it. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. He's not going to pour wrath out on this vineyard anymore. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. He's going to remove anyone who would go and cast out briars and thorns, weeds, and sow weeds in his, in his vineyard. He's going to burn them completely. Let him rely on my protection. 
Let him make let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. So the Lord here in these verses promises to protect Israel so that they will be a fruitful nation. He will, they will once again return and have, be at peace with God. Notice the emphasis on that twice repeated in verse 5. This protection would not, be, would not come automatically for Israel. Israel would first have to put their trust in him to be at peace, and that peace would come through trusting in the Savior, through the Messiah. Peace with God would allow the vine of Israel to be then be fruitful. It's not going to be like they're going to be very agriculturally fruitful, but they're going to be fruitful in all their deeds, in, the, in righteousness, in justice, in mercy. They're going to fulfill the very purposes that God intended for them, and it's going to impact. They're going to fill the whole world with fruit. Sometimes it's said of uh, Christians, the, the Christian faith has so blessed our world, you know, the schools, hospitals that we've started because of, at the hand of Christians, the, the, the seminaries, which became many of our leading universities today, were all because of the hands of Christians. The Christian faith is at the hand of almost everything that has been good in our world. Imagine what it will be like when the nation of Israel will be redeemed and their influence upon this world. It will be equal, if not greater. The next, and so we see there's going to be a restoration of Israel, described as the vineyard that God's going to restore. We see how the Lord's going to do this, verse 7 through 11. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? And that's, you know, what, what's that saying? Um, but it's kind of two rhetorical questions simply saying this, that God says, I've been merciful on Israel. I've not judged them. I've not struck them. I've not slain them as I have, as I have judged those who have done this, who have treated, have struck or slain the people of Israel. I've spared Israel. I've protected them, guarded them from that similar striking. God, there, uh, we'll continue verse 8. How God treated Israel. You contended with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be, therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when Asherim and incense altars will not stand. We'll stop. Uh, I'll continue on. For the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze, and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them, for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. This is a description of how God uses, brings about the repentance of Israel. God has used, in the, and God has used basically their casting out of the promised land. At the very part of the cursings upon that God promised Israel is that when you keep disobeying me, I'm going to cast you out of the land. I'm going to take you out of this very land that I promised you for your descents forever. I'm going to cast you out of it. And this is likely referring to the, begin, the beginning in the Babylonian captivity. And even if you will, it happened when they were brought back in the return of the exile, they were cast out again in AD 70 when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. And, of course, they were cast and spread afar until shortly after World War II. The description here, verse 10 and 11, of the description of the fortified city of Jerusalem, left desolate, left forsaken. God is, God's discipline of Israel in causing them to be taken out, to be removed from the land, was God's means of bringing them to repentance. And they would repent when Israel finally realizes that, our, that why, we're, why we are cast away is because of our idols. And they would pulverize their idols. They would turn away from their idols as a whole and turn back in faith to God. That's where their iniquity will be forgiven. And if you will, that has not happened yet. That has not happened yet. It's, Israel as a whole has not turned away from their idols. Now, they may not have any idols, any statues like the ashram or the incense altars today. But they have yet to turn away from the idol of self, 
their self-reliance as a nation, their military might, their, their strength in the, na- in the region, they are all depending upon their, their skill at an espionage and finding out information as a nation. It's some of the best in the world, the best in the world. But still, they have not turned away from their idols and turned in faith to God. Their sins are still not yet forgiven. But in that future day, God will cause them to repent. God will cause them to see of the emptiness of turning to others and will cause them to bring them back. And that's, and that's what this, these verses kind of describe. A pardoning of God that will bring them back to peace with him where then they will bear the fruits that God has intended the vineyard of Israel to, to, bring, to bear. Lastly, in verse 12 to 13, there's going to be a purification of Israel. Verse 12 and 13, in that day the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. And you'll be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. And what we see here is that there's going to be a person, there's two pictures. 12 13, they sound the same, but they're actually two different pictures. First of all, there's going to be a threshing. A threshing is, you know, when you use a fork with some wheat, you kind of thresh it and you kind of cast it up in the air. The, the chaff will then be blown away, and then the, the, the wheat or the grain will fall down the ground because it's heavier. So there's going to be a separation that's going to happen, a separation of the Israelites, a separation from believing Israelites, from those who refuse to re- believe, those who don't, do not repent, and from those who do repent. This judgment, this threshing is going to take place. There's no one going to be spared. They're all going to be gathered up one by one says God. But in that threshing, there's going to be a dividing. There's going to be a judgment. Some, those who believe, and the majority of the nation will believe, they're going to be, enter into God's, into God's kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And those that do not will perish, will die, will be judged. God's going to purify Israel. He's going to bring them back. He's going to divide the nation. It's going to be very clear. And entering into the millennial kingdom, there will be no such thing as a Jew in the millennial kingdom, who does not believe in the Lord, they will all enter as a believing nation. The unbelieving will face the wrath. Not only is there a judgment that's coming for Israel, but verse 13 tells us there's going to be a gathering of the remnant. God's going to bring them back to himself no matter where they are. What if I'm a Jewish person? What if I'm living all the way in America? How am I going to know that's going to happen? Well, God can reach you here too. It says that God's going to reach, the trumpet's going to be blown. And that's kind of imagery that we see in the trumpet judgments of Revelation. The perishing, all those who are scattered all throughout from Assyria to Egypt. Those are the two ends of the two major empires in that day. Assyria to the east, Egypt to the west. All are going to become and all are going to worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. The righteous nation is going to enter into it and they are going to worship. And they're going to sing that song that we sung, that we sung in verse chapter 26. A gathering of the remnant. And there, ruling over them, will be the Messiah, will be Christ. No matter where they've been scattered, God will bring them back. No matter how far Israel flees from them. In fact, you kind of just think about it now, statistically now, though there is a nation of Israel, there are Jewish people living in Israel. There are more Jews living outside of Israel now than in the nation of Israel. They're scattered throughout the nations of this earth in various places to different extents. God's going to bring them all back. Every one of them, one by one. What a great promise. That's a, you know, if I was a Jewish person, I would, I would hold on to this promise. I would love this verse. God's going to gather us up one by one. You can just imagine why the Jewish people were so excited when Jesus showed up. Why they wanted to make him king. Because if, if he was king, when he established his throne, he's going to establish his kingdom. All that they wanted, all the promises are going to be fulfilled at that moment. They're going to be able to worship him without the enemy, enemy surrounding them. That it did not happen then. That's waiting a future time. That is still going to happen because God is not unfaithful. God is not untrustworthy. God has not changed his mind. God is still the same. He's the rock of ages. He was worthy of your trust then, Israel. He's your worthy of your trust now, Israel. And if he's worthy of Israel's trust, he is certainly worthy of our trust. You kind of just devotionally, if you will, just as God can draw Israel from no matter how far they have moved away from him, God can draw back his people, you, as a believer of Christ. 
You may flee from him. You may want to run away. Maybe next week you're no longer going to attend this church. You're going to go and do, live your life wherever you want, maybe, from this point on. And I know it's going to be sin that's going to take you away. And know that you may choose to live in that sin. You may follow after your sin for as long as you wish, till you indulge it, till your heart's content. But if you belong to him, you will be unsettled. You'll be unhappy. You'll be discontent because God will be doing a work in your life. You'll be wondering, why is everything messed up in my life? Because God owns you, and God will bring you back, and he will. He is faithful. He will never leave you nor forsake you because you belong to him. That is the wonder of our God, and I just want you to know that. You can trust in him. We conclude. Just a last kind of just thought encouragement to us. We talk about so many things, and I, I, you know, I forgive me if I, I'm talking about eschatological events, and many of you are like, what is he talking about? Tribulation, you know, kind of things like that. What's, well, you know, maybe that needs to be a workshop, some Sunday school class. Next time we teach Revelation, you go to Revelation class. There's a lot packed in here. But just put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites in that day. The Israelites were facing a coming judgment. The Assyrian Empire is knocking at the door. They're knocking out nation after nation. They're about to knock on the doors of Jerusalem. If you're a person living in that day, there is nothing but fear at that. God is going to promise, in fact, that you're going to be also conquered by Babylon. You're going to be taken into captivity. You're going to be removed. Can you imagine if God promised us, you know, in about 70 years, all of you are going to be living in a different land. You're going to be prisoners, slaves in Antarctica, okay, I don't want to lose any nations lest you all be offended. Why'd you choose my nation? And Antarctica. And you're going to spend 70 years there. Your children are going to be born there as slaves. You know, that's going to be your life. It's going to be a hard life. And there's nothing that's going to change that. That's the life that Israel was facing. That's the world they were living. That's God's promise to them. So can you imagine then when they come across this page, these verses. In that day, I'm going to restore you, Israel. I'm going to bring you back to myself. I'm going to, there is a future for you. You're not without hope. There is hope for us. Even if we die and we, we lie in the grave, there is still hope for us because we will be raised from the dead. We will be brought back to life. That kingdom that he promised, we're going to be there. We're going to be part of that. We're going to experience that. All these are God's promise to national Israel. There's no sin, Israel. There's no distance that, can, that, can, that you can flee from. That there's no period of time that, can, can, that God cannot overcome to bring you back to himself. For God has promised to do so. This is true with his chosen nation. And I would, ask, would say that this is true for his chosen people, the church of Jesus Christ today. He is a rock. He is a rock of the ages that we can trust in for all our circumstances. May we remember the, the words of verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever, forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Everlasting. There's no circumstance, no situation. There's no time in my life, in your lives that we cannot turn to the rock. He'll be there for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that your word, your person, your character, your trustworthiness, your faithfulness, your steadfastness will be impressed upon each of our hearts. Lord, we sing these songs. We sing Rock of Ages. We sing Like a River Glorious. We've sung these songs of trust in you. But Lord, we all confess how easy it is that that next trial, that next long wait at the traffic stop, the next time our children disobey us, the next time our coworkers turn their back or betray us, the next time things don't go our way, the next time we're tempted, the next time we have a broken relationship in an argument. Oh, Lord, how easy it is that we stop trusting in you. We start complaining. We start worrying. We forget who you are. 
Father, forgive us when we don't trust in you. Cause us to keep growing in our understanding of how much we need you, how much we depend upon you. Help us to be a people who depend upon you, knowing that you are faithful, trustworthy. You are our rock, the rock of ages. And Lord, we desire to, we know because we belong to you that while we're learning to trust in you now, we know that in eternity we will trust in you forever. Along with redeemed from the church and the redeemed of national Israel. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to rejoice in this good news. Comfort those who are going through trials, especially now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you this week.